Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to the Office Theology Podcast. I'm excited to share some sermons that I've preached with you. In this message, I go through Cain and Abel in Genesis 4 about the sin of envy. I hope you are encouraged and challenged by it today. I'm excited to teach today as we continue in Genesis Foundation series. We are kicking off chapter 4, and I have titled my message, if you were taking notes, The Sin of Envy. So if it's the first time here, welcome. So glad you're here. Let's find out if you're envious or not. Sound good? Um, This is uncomfortable. So let's move on. But I want to explore this one guiding thought with you. It is this. What you allow to dominate your thoughts will eventually dominate your actions. What you allow to dominate your thoughts will eventually dominate your actions. So we are going to pray, and then we're going to kick this off. Jesus, we love you. God, we are here because of you, by you, and for you. God, today, we want to make sure that you are honored, that you are glorified, that you are made known above all else. And we just come in a humble posture saying, come Holy Spirit and have your way. This is for you. And so you get to do what you want to do. We say this in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4, 1 through 16, like I said. So we're going to get cruising and reading through this. Verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore her brother Abel. Now Abel was the keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground, a shepherd and a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had, regarded for a- had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Just some interesting observations real quick. So this is Adam and Eve's firstborn son after what just went down in the garden. We just talked about this last week. This is the first son, the firstborn. And also remember in Genesis 3.15, the promise that the seed of Eve will come and crush the head of the serpent. So who knows if Eve is like, okay, we have a boy. Here we go. This is it. This is the promised one. But how we know the story goes, that is not what happens. People often debate that if the difference in offerings is the reason why God wasn't pleased with Cain's offering, but was with Abel's. But what we see in Leviticus 2 is that these are actually both acceptable offerings to God. So that begs a question, how come God didn't accept it? Thankfully, the writer of Hebrews kind of solves this mystery for us in Hebrews 11.4. says, it was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering uh, to God than Cain did. But we'll break that down in just a little bit. Verse 6 says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. See, Cain is not just internally wrestling, but clearly has moved to the outside. Have you ever been in an interaction with someone, and they're like, what's wrong with you? And they're like, nothing. Why do you say it? Well, your face is telling a different story. Um, marriage is a great example of this sometimes. Like, I'm like, 
Uh, I always do this. I'm like, Kelly, are you doing okay? And she just has a, um, a face that says, hey, I might be intense. If you know my wife, it's true, and I love her very much. But I go, hey, are you doing okay? She goes, yeah, I'm fine. I'm like, are you sure? She goes, well, if you keep asking me, I'm not going to be fine, right? <laughs> All the wives are like, amen. Like, just let it be. I'll come to you when I want to talk about it. But sometimes you can see on the external that the internal of how you feel, you don't even know that it's starting to come out in your facial expressions, how you move and how you act and how you look. See, right here we see the first stern warning of uh, to Cain from God. He's trying to help him see what's allowing to dominate his thoughts will eventually dominate his actions. His actions are showing where his heart is. Or his thoughts are trying to convince him otherwise. He's trying to convince himself that what he brought to God is what God wanted. He's trying to be the one who sets the standard of the offering. Verse 8 says this. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Bold strategy, Cain. His internal dialogue led to external actions of drastic measure. He did not consider God's warning or adhere to it. So when his inward frustration, resentment, and envy gave way, it led to murdering his brother. God's question feels oddly familiar, doesn't it? Just like his parents. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they said, God said, where are you? This question of discovery, God knew exactly where they were. But what he was doing was inviting them into confession. He brought the same question to Cain when he said, where is your brother? He is asking him to give him a chance to repent and confess. But what does he do? He does a sassy remark back. At least that's how it sounds in my brain. He says he doesn't know where his brother is. Am I my brother's keeper? Similar to his parents, he shifts the blame. Instead of answering his responses, who's responsible for Abel? Let's read on, or verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Verse 12, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength, but you shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, from the place that he's at, and from your face, from his presence. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer of the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Verse 15, then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Man, that last sentence is heartbreaking. He moved away from the presence of the Lord. See, the consequence of Cain's action sounds familiar once again. Like parents, like son, I guess, in this moment. The curse upon Cain was that of Adam's curse would be amplified in regards to him. And bringing forth 
food from the earth, it would be hard for Adam, it would be impossible for Cain, who was a farmer. And if Adam were driven from Eden, Cain would find no resting place in all of the earth. And so, Cain's anger towards God and his brother led to being dominated by the sin he was warned of, the sin of envy, because Abel had it better, so Cain got bitter. So there's three main takeaways that I want to wrestle through together in this. The first one is this, bring God your best. Bring God your best. See, there are two sacrifices. Let's break these down for a moment. The first uh, from Abel was the firstborn of their flock and the fat portions. So this shows, I love Leviticus. I don't know a lot of people I talk to like, I'm not a big fan of Leviticus. I'm like, I absolutely love Leviticus. It shows the intensity of sin and how far and just how seriously God takes our brokenness and the requirements it takes for us to be made right. But this is not a sermon on Leviticus. It's Genesis, so I'll get back. This shows Abel's offering was extra special. The fat of the animal was prized as its luxury. It was to be given to God when the animal was sacrificed. Leviticus 3 and 7 talk about this. The burning of the fat in the sacrifice before God is called a sweet aroma to the Lord. We see this in Leviticus 17. See, Abel's offering was intentional. It was extravagant. Abel understood who he was offering to, and that makes a big deal. See, Abel understood, like I said, who he was giving an offer to, so that impacted why and what he did. Cain gave an offering of the fruit of the ground. No thought, obedient, but without consideration. Many commenters talk about how Cain's offering was this flippant, was flippant and done out of what should be done, an effort of empty religion and works. The reality is this is the tension for all of us in this room, not just Cain and Abel in this story. The tension in all that we do for God lies in the realization of who we are honoring, not just what we are doing. So as we live our lives, as we do things in our day-to-day life, as we honor God with our life and our habits and our thoughts and the patterns that we have, it is the realization of who we are honoring, not just what we are doing to honor them. You see, Cain and Abel, even according to Leviticus, those are both acceptable offerings. But if they are both acceptable offerings, why why did God accept one and reject the other? It's not just what's we are doing, but it's understanding who we are doing it for. Not that we are doing something required of us, but that we understand the gravity of who we are honoring. So like during the time of music and singing, why do we sing these songs together? We're not just playing Christian karaoke. Like we're not here just to sing songs because, well, that feels like a good melody. That sounds like a good tune. Ooh, that rhymed really, really well. Like, oh, those musicians are absolutely killing it. Like that's not why we sing. Why we sing is an overflow of who we're singing to. That when we realize that God is worth every bit of our emotions, he's worth us getting uncomfortable and vocalizing these promises over our life that he is absolutely worth singing to. He is worth honoring. He is worth giving adoration and praise to. It's no longer why am I singing, what am I singing about. It's who am I singing to? Who am I singing to? 
Why do we gather together as believers? Is it because it's Sunday and we should? And that's when Christians go to church? No, we gather together for the edification, the building up of one another. That when we come in this room and we worship together and we talk with one another, that we are encouraged in the Lord to to go out from here, not just come here and hunker down, but we motivate and encourage and exhort one another to leave this room and be Christ-like in the areas that we have. It's not just to sit in a room. Why do we take communion? And I won't steal Justin's thunder because he's going to walk us through this later, but communion is an important symbolic thing that we remember that reminds our heart of the victory of the cross. Justin talked about giving. It's because we have to understand that every part of our life is given unto the Lord, and we don't give because we ought to. We get Give because we get to, and he gave us the ability to earn in the first place. Loving one another. Not loving those who just love you back. Paul speaks strictly to this, says, even the pagans love people who love them back. The different and the mark of Christians are the ability to love in the middle when someone doesn't love you back. Why do we do these things? Is it because we should? Is it because we ought to? Is it because we were told from a very young age we should? But what we need to realize is that all of these things are unto the Lord. It's an offering to the Lord. It's not just... If all your faith, if all your actions, if all that you do is simply because I ought to, you are missing the deep love of Christ. You are missing the opportunity to to love him from a deep, deep place, not just with what you do, but with how you feel, with, with, with the honoring of your heart. Like there is such a beauty and understanding that we get to do these things because God is worth every bit of doing these things for. And so when we look at Cain and Abel, there's a stark difference between understanding who we're doing these for and what they were giving to and who the offering was to. So when you find yourself in here this morning, I want to ask you this question. Why do you do the things that you do for God? Now, I'm not standing up here as a perfect person. I can give you a long laundry list of things that I do out of selfish pride that look a lot like Cain. But my prayer in this is that we begin and understand the heart of Abel and ask God to convict me and correct me and show me where to return back to him in this area. Probably get back to my notes. Got a lot to go. We see this in King David. He talks about an offering that costs you something. In 2 Samuel 20, 24, there's a story of King David was instructed by the Lord to build an altar and to give an offering. There's this person, Arona, who who had a place where David was to build this offering, but what he did was he offered the oxen for the offering. He wanted to give King David the offering. He said, here, I know that you have to do this. The Lord has called you to build this altar and to do a burnt offering here. I want to gift you these oxen and listen to King David's response. No, I will buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer a burnt offering to the Lord my God that has cost me nothing. It's not an offering when it doesn't cost you anything. And how often in my faith and how often do I bring things to God that don't actually cost me anything? 
It's like, here, God, you can have the extras. You can have the things that I don't really want anyways. You can have my sin. You can have my brokenness. You can have all the excess stuff that I don't really want anyways. And I mask it and put a bow on it and say, here's my offering to God. Look how spiritual I am. But it didn't really cost me anything. But it didn't really, it wasn't really a sacrifice. And I wonder why, when I offer things to God that didn't cost me anything, there feels like a disconnect. Could it be that God wants your heart? He wants your priorities. He wants your thoughts. He wants all that you are, not for the sake of to make you miserable, but to understand that he is worth all of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, if we increase the value of Christ in our life, we wouldn't have to decrease the cost of following him. If we increase the the value of following Jesus, we wouldn't have to try to decrease the cost to follow him. We see this in all sorts of parables, like the one, the man who found the pearl of great price, he found the pearl in the field, and he sold everything to buy that field because he knew how valuable it was. And when we get a glimpse of God in our life, what Jesus has done, we say, of course I'm going to forsake and offer all of this because that is far more valuable than whatever I'm trying to hold on to now. That we have to understand that he is worth everything to give to him. He is worth every little bit of what I have give to him. Where I want us to evaluate this portion of scripture and personally want to ask you is this why? Why do you do the things that you do? Is it costing you anything? Cain forgot why he was bringing an offering, but Abel didn't. Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Cain's anger was undoubtedly rooted in pride. He couldn't bear his brother's offering, was accepted before God, and his offering was not. In this moment, he shifted blame and was unwilling to own his real intentions. Blazing resentment toward God welled within Cain, which became directed at his brother Abel. His bitterness was so intense that no one could miss it, and this is the beautiful part. This is where God meets him. Second point is this. An unchecked heart leads to brokenness. Verse 6 and 7 say this. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God's warning to Cain is gracious as it is intense. God is speaking to what's going on within Cain. But the reality is how we own our sins and how we deal with our frustrations greatly matter to God. Because the reality is sin is crouching and waiting at all of our doors. It's so easy to look at stories. It's so easy to read these from afar and remove ourselves from the text, and we want to be able, don't we? We do so bad. And I will say to give us some credit, there are some areas of life where we have able moments, but I, I would be full of pride and arrogance if I didn't realize that sin is crouching at my door just as much as Cain's. And I love you enough to say that sin is crouching at your door just as much as Cain's. 
The sin at the door was Cain's own sin. The beast that he was warned about was within himself. And we learn from James chapter 1, when sin is allowed to grow, it will bring death. This warning from God is where we see the grace of God. In the middle of this tragic story, God always brings grace and the choice to confess, to be healed, and even in the worst situations. However, Cain chose pride. And in his pride, envy ran unchecked and was allowed to flourish. I need to take a breather for a second. I'm getting a little rowdy. I want to answer this question real quick. What is envy? Envy is more than jealousy. Jealousy is I want what someone else has. On Good Friday, Pastor Ryan recommended a book called Glittering Vices. It's phenomenal. Get it, but get ready to cry while you read it, okay? This is the definition of envy from this book. is Envy's view of the world is essentially antagonistic. It's me versus you, my good or your good. Never both. In the zero-sum game, when they lack the good that they need, the natural reaction of the envious person is to undermine and destroy the good of their rival. Envy says it's either me or it's you. It's not both of us. Either I'm better than you or you're better than me. It is a competitive uh, part of our heart that is saying, I need to dominate you. I need to rule over you. I need to be better than you. The envious person wants to be superior for their self-esteem and their identity depends on outranking others in the relevant field of comparison. She goes on later talking in this book that we, heart, that we very rarely envy celebrities or super rich people, whatever this is, like these, these people that feel like they're not even in the same context as us because we cannot achieve where they're at. We may be jealous of them, but where we grow in envy is someone who's in the same circle as us. Cain was outranked in the field of offerings to God. And that grew and that led to to action of murdering his brother. When we are envious of others, we are quick to discover what you find most valuable in your life. Does someone make more money than you that's close to you? Is someone better looking than you? Is someone fitter than you? Does someone have more friends? Are they in a relationship? Are they married? Are they funny? Are they athletic? Are they successful? What things in your heart do you envy about the people that you find yourself surrounded with? When we envy, we compare. Comparison puts us on top or on bottom, but never neutral. Comparison is the fuel that adds to the fire of envy in your heart. The reality is this, that envy destroys love. The commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself, and the envier can do neither. The commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself, and the envier can do neither. They can't love the person next to them, and they can't love themselves because their identity and self-worth is wrapped up in defeating someone. Just a way of observation, this isn't the only time we see envy lead to eradicating the, quote, competition. You see this with Jacob and his son Joseph. He loved him more than his other children. He gave him a robe. He paid a lot of attention to him. So what did his siblings do? They plotted to kill him. 
The reality is that we choose to allow envy to go unchecked and to grow in our life. We aren't just rejecting and plotting against others. We are turning our back on God. Because those people are image bearers of God. There's this Charles Spurgeon quote that makes me sound smarter than I am, so I'm going to read it. The cool abundance of Cain is an indication of the state of heart which led up to his murdering his brother. And it was also a part of the result of having committed that terrible crime. Listen to this. He would not have proceeded to the cruel deed of bloodshed if he had not first cast off the fear of God and been ready to defy his maker. And here's the heartbreaking reality of envy that we see in Cain and Abel. Even after Cain killed Abel, He got what he wanted. It still wasn't enough to do what he really wanted, God to accept his offering. Even when he got exactly what he wanted, he plotted, he executed. That was kind of an unintentional pun. Like he killed his brother. Like what happened is he got what he wanted, but it didn't really give him what he ultimately wanted and what he needed. And what he wanted was his offering to be acceptable and accepted by God. Because reality is this, no matter how hard you try to scratch the itch of envy, it will never satisfy what your soul really needs, a trust and faith in God. Envy is just a downward spiral of self-focus and others destroying that will never satisfy what your soul really needs. And that is to be in this deep, beautiful relationship with God, our creator, and recognize everything I have is worth offering and giving to him. But this is the beautiful part of God, number three, grace and failure. One thing I love about God is even in the midst of failure, stubborn, unrepentant hearts, emotions, frustration, anger, erratic behavior, God is still so gracious. He's always providing an opportunity for you and for me to receive his grace and repent of our ways and return back to him. We see this so clearly in God's, in this story of Cain and Abel. But first, I want to examine Cain's response to God's judgment. His response to God banishing him from where he lives and out of his presence is this. My punishment is more than I can bear. Cain didn't feel bad for sin, but only about his punishment. This attitude did not end with Cain. Like many of him, many people, we only feel bad about our punishment and our consequences, but not the sin that we committed. Another way to say is, I'm not sorry for what I did. I'm sorry I got caught. There's nothing recorded of Cain repenting, confessing, or owning up to what he has done. The punishment is what Cain had an issue with, not what he was being punished for. I don't like to admit it, but when I read that and I look at this story, I'm like, that feels a little too close to home. That feels a little too close. That feels a little too personal. Come on, God. This is a story about Cain and Abel, the first jacked up brothers. Like, this is not about Brennan. Holy Spirit says, oh, no, no, no. I love you way too much to keep yourself away from this. The Spirit of God loves you way too much to allow this to continue to run rampant in your life. 
because it is a toxic poison that is slowly dripping in your life that is killing areas and affecting relationships more than you or I may know. Because one of the clearest marks of sin is almost our innate desire to excuse ourselves and complain if we are judged in any way. How ironic the murderer was afraid of being murdered. Cain's worry is still about himself. He is sorry. He isn't sorry about murder, sinning against God, and that he is leaving God's presence. Nothing. He's still worried about his punishment. Because one of the consequences of sin is that it makes the sinner pity himself instead of causing him to turn to God. One of the first signs of new life is that the individual takes sides with God against themselves. The reality is this this sign, this clear understanding of this new life that we are walking in in Christ. A clear response is that I trust God's judgment over my life, over my judgment, over my life. Because what happens is we want to judge ourselves based on our intentions, not our actions, right? Well, I didn't intend to do that. I didn't mean to do that. Well, what I actually meant to say was this, but it doesn't matter. What shows is what the actions show what has been dominating our thoughts. Well, I didn't mean it like that. It doesn't matter what I meant. It's like it's what it came out as. But God in his amazing grace protects Cain even after all of this goes down. By all estimates, God's mark, whatever it was, was an amazing grace to Cain's life. Cain was cursed and separated from God, yet God God guarded him. Cain's life still belonged to God. There's an astounding amount of grace right here in one of the darkest scenes in Genesis. We can see that God did not abandon guilty Cain. When Cain brought his sparse offering to God and God saw his evil anger, God did not turn away from him. That is grace. God, in fact, engaged Cain with questions to get to his heart. That's grace. God then exhorted Cain to withstand the temptations in his heart. That is grace. After murdering, the Lord listened to Cain's unrepentant, self-pitying plea. Grace. Finally, God placed a sign upon Cain that protected him for the remainder of his natural life. What an amazing grace from God. (laughs) Someone throughout this entire story refused at every turn to heed to God's direction and guidance, and God still showed grace. And people are like, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's just wrathful, vengeance, and angry, and the zero grace. Have they read the scriptures? Look at this. I would have handled it way different than, thank God I'm not God, right? We can see the grace of God so clearly in this story. So I have a question for you today as we're, as we're allowing our heart and our mail to be read by the Holy Spirit this morning. Will you respond to his grace today the way that you have been acting like Cain? Will you allow the goodness of God to bring you to repentance? Because the reality is this. We are no better than Cain. We are no better than him. 
There's areas of every single one of our lives. That's why I love scripture. No one can hide from it. That's why I love the Holy Spirit. No one can hide from his conviction. We can try to ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist and try to drown out the voice of God in our life. But the reality is even how noisy you make your life, the voice of God is always in there somewhere. Because the reality is when we walk into this room, we listen to this text and we wrestle with the text that we are sitting with an opportunity to respond to the gospel. We just had our Easter service and Good Friday service, and boy, it was emotional, and it was beautiful, and it was heart-wrenching, and it was hopeful, and it was joyful. It was all the emotions in one. Because on Good Friday, we sat with the weight of our sin. We sat with the weight of what it cost Jesus to make us right with the Father. We were faced with our own brokenness. We're, we were faced with our double-minded ways. We were faced with our, our sin and our shame and our guilt and our hidden sins. But then on Sunday, we got to celebrate Jesus' death over hell, over Satan, over the grave, that now in him, in faith, in Jesus, we are able to walk in this free gift of grace. So I want to extend an invitation to you this morning. Will you either sit at a distance or will you engage with the Spirit of God this morning and say, Jesus, I repent of my ways that have been contrary to your word, that has been contrary to how you made me, that I've been living in these Cain-like moments of my life. Will you say yes to the grace of God and will you allow the grace of God and the goodness of God bring you to repentance this morning? May we never forget the beauty of repentance. Whether you've been a Christian one day or 50, 60, 70 plus years, may we always remember that repentance is a beautiful, beautiful opportunity given to us by the grace of God. And would you return back to the creator? So two questions I want to ask before we end this. Where are you obeying God but lacking intentionality with what you're with your best. Maybe for the people in the room, you've just been doing what you've always been doing because you ought to, or you were told to. You've either never made this relationship with God personal, or you've simply forgotten who you're doing this for. The second question is this: Where are you comparing yourself with others to the point of anger with God or anger with them? You've made someone who is the image of God an enemy to you. Or maybe you find yourself angry with God, so you're punishing him and putting him at a distance. I want to close with this one last reading from Philippians 2, 1 through 4, from Paul writing to the Philippian church. It simply says this, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy and be of the same mind and have the same love, be of full accord and of one mind. Listen to this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look out to his own interests, but also the interests of others. 
And I want to remind you of our guiding thought today. What's, what you allow to dominate your thoughts will eventually dominate your actions. If you allow scripture, the love of God, and the spirit of God to dominate your thoughts, they will eventually dominate your actions. Would you pray with me? God, would you reveal in every single one of us where our hearts have been wayward, where God, our offerings that we've been giving you cost us absolutely nothing. We've just been giving you half-hearted offerings and doing things that we ought to do. But Holy Spirit, would you convict us to return back to the goodness of God, the grace of God, and allow your word not just to be words that we hear, but that, Spirit, you you put these deep into our lives, God, and cause us to respond and understand that you are worth every single bit of our life and everything that we have, Jesus. I pray that we lay our lives down, God, that our lives become an offering, that our lives become a pleasing aroma to you, Jesus. God, that we're not here to build us up and to make us the best person. God, that you would root out the envy in our hearts, but Holy Spirit, that we would come to you and that we would find fresh new life, fresh and new perspective and understanding of the goodness of who you are, Jesus. I thank you for all that you're doing. We say this in your name. Amen.